one of the objectives that we have is to be able to uh, cover the whole breadth of the Christian message in the, in the sense that, number one, we want to point ourselves all the time to Jesus, uh, wherever we are. So you might be here visiting this afternoon, and you, are, you, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you wouldn't call yourself a follower in Jesus, of Jesus Christ, uh, and so we would want to point you to Jesus. Uh, for those of, who have uh, been following Jesus as Lord and Savior for anything from a day to uh, decades, we still want to point you to Jesus, uh, because that is where you will grow, that is where you will develop, that is where you will nurture as a Christian. Uh, but we do that, and the Bible does that, in many different ways. It does it historically, by reminding us of the past, by reminding us of perspectives of time and seeing patterns. It, remind, it, it does it through teaching us in, and instructing us in what we would call doctrine, or principles or ideas of what the Bible teaches us about certain things. Uh, and so the last series that we did, which was looking at uh, nine vital signs of life, which was one particular section in the book of, of uh, uh, Galatians, was um, looking specifically at the fruit of the Spirit in terms of the outcome of what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. That's where we were there. It was very much looking at principles, teaching, but even as we looked at that, you remember, what we did is we went back and we look at, looked at different aspects of the life of Jesus. How that worked out in the lives of different people. We're coming to a new series now. This is introduction, really. Uh, Heirs of the Promise. We're looking, we're going to start today, looking at the life of Abraham. Or Abraham, as it is at this point in our reading. The life of Abraham. Uh, a very important, in fact, a key historical figure in the Old Testament. He appears first in Genesis chapter 11, which is what we read, and he continues for a number of chapters. And uh, he is absolutely key, essential in the plan of God, which is how we will see this unfolding over these next weeks as we uh, journey through this. But at the same time, we want to bear in mind that this is not just a history lesson. This is not about us gaining an insight into a life of many years ago. It is about gaining an insight into a life from many years ago which points to Jesus, which has impact for us today. That's what it's about. Um, having said that, for us to be able to do that in series terms, we need to lay some foundations, don't we? We need to get ourselves grounded, if you like, in terms of where we are in Bible terms. Where are we at this particular point in time? I want to create in our minds to, to, to do that this afternoon. I want to create two pictures in our minds. The first picture, which will really be a theme that will continue right the way through the series, is the tragedy of our current world's view of who we are. The tragedy of our current world's view of who we are. We have ended up now at the back end of three centuries pretty much of a humanist perspective. Now what that means is that we've reached a point in our world's history in Western 
civilization where we have had three centuries of people looking at our existence, looking at who we are, purely from our perspective. Now that has obviously, it's become increasingly so over those three centuries. The more that you look at it from one perspective, the more you, you, the more you drive yourself down the line of looking at it from that perspective. Uh, but the humanistic perspective has driven us to look at us as people, who we are, uh, as purely from our point of view. The outcome of that is that we've reduced ourselves, somebody has described it, we've reduced humanity to a combination of cosmic chemical accidents. That's a great point, isn't it? We are the result of cosmic chemical accidents. That's the perspective that we have increasingly come to. Now, when we reach that point, there are certain outcomes. <laughs> you know, when, we, when we decide that we are purely the result of uh, a cosmic um, crisis in the cosmic laboratory that went back in time and things happened that accidentally resulted in you and me, there is an outcome to that, there is a result of that. That we have detached ourselves, we have lost any sense of our origins. Now you might think to yourself, well, surely if we are increasingly trying to work out where we've come from, surely we've got origins, haven't we? Well, actually, from a biblical point of view, the Bible would want to say we have much bigger origins, much bigger sense of identity, a much bigger picture of who we are than simply a set of chemicals that is existing in a space of time for relatively a short period of time of this universe's existence, which is what we would be told again and again. The Bible was said we, we have got much bigger origins than that. And if we've got origins which the Bible would encourage us to think about, it would also say not only have you got origins, but you actually have a destiny as well. <laughs> you, you might have that's where you've come from. That's great news. You need to understand that. The Bible is telling us something about where we've come from but if the Bible is saying there's something about where we've come from it must be saying as well that we have some sort of destiny there is a future now do you see when we've become uh, a cosmic accident in the, in the chemistry lab uh, of, the, of the universe when that happens and we haven't got any origins then we by definition cannot have as a human race any destiny. We can't have any destiny. The only destiny, destiny that we can have, if that's what happened back there, is that some point out there, it's just going to reverse itself. We have no destiny. And the Bible would want to contend with that. In fact, the Bible has always contended with that idea and has said, you humanity have a great heritage you have a great origin you have a great destiny but we need to work out that we need to see how that unfolds so that's the one thing that I want to keep in mind this series 
is about particularly about us understanding our origins. And particularly about us as a church in the 21st century that couldn't be more detached from a nomadic group of people who are wandering around in a desert. We couldn't be more detached from that, could we, really? That we are absolutely connected to that origin. It is essential for us, that origin. We can't do without it because it is part of the pattern that takes us to our destiny. We are connected to it. So that's the first thing. That's about the big picture of the whole of this series. The second point, and more particularly for today, the second picture that I want to point, uh, paint in our minds is the idea of the end of dreams. The end of a dream. We have seen huge success over these past few days, haven't we, at the Olympics. Absolute drama, absolute jubilation, and at the same time, because we have seen that, we have also seen the end of dreams. I don't think there's anybody who I feel more sorry for than Jess Varnish, the cyclist who was disqualified along with Victoria Pendleton. It was the only event that she was competing in, the team sprint. It was the only event. All of her teammates to this point have got gold. And she has got nothing. The end of dreams just ends. It's over. Four years. Absolute commitment. When you hear what these people put themselves through, when the commitments that they make day in, day out, to the point of training for a few hours, even on Christmas Day, to the point of training so hard that they're throwing up at the end of a session, that's how bad it is. And that's it. Gone. Ironically, Victoria Pendleton wins a gold by the same distance as Jess Varnish got disqualified by. Isn't that ironic? Same distance. She wins by, she loses by. To some extent, what we're reading here is for people whose dream has ended. Why is that? Let's put it into context. Let's go forward 1,400 years from our reading. So if we can get our reading up on the screen, we're reading about an account of a man called Terah, a man called Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. That's the characters that are introduced. It's like the setting of the stage. The actual gathering together of this particular book, it was written in various forms, various parts. It was oral, there was oral tradition, there was written tradition. Then there's a point where it was all gathered together and it was written together, contained. It, was, it, it, it kind of came together for God's people. When was that? When the dream had ended. Fast forward 1,400 years and God's people who have gone through the zenith of King David and King Solomon's reign are now exiled, captive in Babylon. 
They've lost everything. And while they are in that situation, while the dream has ended, there is the gathering together and the writing out and the the whole, the, 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 the compiling of all of this story. What has gone on? What has gone on in the past? Let's look at what's happening. Now, as we read our Bibles here, uh, we've got chapters, chapter 11. We've got verses. We've got verse 27 here. When Genesis was first compiled, it wasn't anything like that. It was just one continuous uh, writing. But there were chapters. All of the chapters began really with this. This is the account. They're like for the writer, for the the, the compiler, they're kind of little points where it says, here's a new point in the storyline. This is the account. And we're right, do you see that? This is the account. That's like an opening chapter, an opening milestone in the story. If we go back through Genesis and we can see that there's the opening point of the heavens and earth, it says in Genesis uh, Genesis 2, this is the account of the heavens and earth, there's the staging. Genesis chapter 5, this is the uh, account of Adam's family line. There we go, we've got a, a, a picture of all of the family line of Adam and it carries on with the story from there. Chapter 6, it says, this is the account of Noah and his family. Chapter 10, it says, this is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons. And now we come to chapter 11. At the beginning, it says, this is the account of Shem's family line. This is the account of Terah. It's really important. That is so so important when you understand how that's written when we see that what's going on there there is a constructing of a storyline that wants to hold your attention and wants to hold my attention and it wants to say this it wants to say follow the story through follow the line through what's going on there's the beginning there's a creation of the world And then there's Adam. Let's follow his storyline through. There's lots of other things that are going on, but we'll take you down one particular line. Uh, And there's lots of things that are happening in the world that more than could have been written. But actually, we we want to focus your attention on just this. Uh, And then we'll get to Noah, and we know what happened with Noah, uh, if we've got any kind of... um, any kind of Bible understanding, if you haven't, what happened with Noah is there's a picture where God uh, wrote, uh, kind of washed away, literally washed away, all of humanity apart from a small group of people. Uh, And then we have, now follow this storyline. So from uh, Noah's sons, we have a line that is, now there's lots of other things that are going on in the world. But later on it says, right, now I want you to follow the line at the beginning of this chapter. I want you to follow the line of Shem. (laughs) There's there's Ham and Japheth and everything else that's going on in the world. But let's focus on Shem. Why? Because I want to take you to Terah. That's where I want to take you to. That's the focus. Because, as we see here... This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abraham. 
Now, with everything else that is going on in the ancient world at that point in time, for you and for me today, that line is the most significant in all that was happening. Terah was the father of Abraham. Now, that might not seem important to us, but it's why we are here today. If that had not happened, we would not be here. That's how significant it is. And that's what the writer of Genesis is wanting you to see and wanting me to see. I'm taking you on a very specific journey through time. I'm taking you on a journey which is focusing your attention, helping you to see certain milestones. There are things that are going on. Now, what happens to Abraham or Terah and his family? Uh, Terah became the father of Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. So here we've got this man, Terah. He's got three sons. Uh, they're living together in Ur of the Chaldeans. One of them dies, uh, and it would see, well, it unfolds, but it seems clear here that uh, Abraham takes on the responsibility of his nephew Lot because Lot's father, Abraham's brother, has died. Now, that's just like, that's setting the scene. That become really important as time goes on, which is what we'll see, but that's setting the scene. This is how it happened. This is why there was the connection between Abraham and Lot because Lot's father had died. He takes him under his wing. Abraham and Nahor both married. The name of Abraham's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. Nahor and Milcah become really important in a few chapters' time, number of chapters' time. We haven't got time to look at that, but they become really important, but it's another setting of the scene. The father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now, Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they, Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and he died in Haran. That's the story. There are two massive things in there. Firstly, we've got a surprising move. We've got a surprising move. They move from Ur, Ur of the Chaldeans and they head out. We're going to deal with that particularly because it's really uh, interesting as we look at it next week. It has huge implications for us. But all that we need to know now is right at this point in time, it was like leaving the center of London and, and heading out to... I'm going to upset somebody if I carry on from there, aren't I? Heading out somebody re somewhere really quiet and relatively uncivilized. That is so politically correct, isn't it? Uh, so they're in the center of London. I mean, Ur of the Chaldeans was one of the world's centers. It was incredibly impressive. There's the ziggurat that's been uh, excavated, uh, recognized, seen through other excavations, the, the ziggurat of Ur. Effectively what that is, 
is an ancient skyscraper. We've just seen the Shard unveil, haven't we, in these past months? The highest skyscraper in Western Europe. Uh, That's nothing actually compared to others around the world, relatively speaking. For the first people, I remember reading some accounts of the development of New York City and the kind of competition that went on to build the highest skyscraper. The Chrysler Building was built, and, uh, and then the Empire State Building was completed just a few months later. Uh, and the builders of the Empire State Building put an antenna on top of it that was just long enough to be higher than the Chrysler Building. And there was this continuous competition that was going on, competing all of the time to be bigger, to be more amazing, to be more incredible. Nothing has changed in the world. Nothing has changed. If you and I had been ancient people, we would have walked into Ur of the Chaldeans and we'd go, wow, this, I can't believe, how did they do that? I mean, to be honest, Today we're wondering how they did it, never mind during the day, in fact they'd have known actually because they'd have probably seen it happening all around them, they would have known, but you know what I'm saying, they look back and they would have seen this amazing, this incredible city, it's got drainage, it's incredible, you know you get rid of your waste from the house, And you don't throw it out on the street. It gets drained away. That's incredible. We didn't catch up with that fully until about the 18th century. It was amazing. It was stunning. And this family leave it to go and live in tents. It's basically what that is the reality of what happens. This is the place of their birth and they leave it to go and wander in a tent. That's an incredible thing that happens. But the second incredible thing, remember that we are readers sometime later. This happened, of course. The significance becomes clearer later on. That's very often the case with the Bible. The significance becomes clearer later on. But the readers who are in trouble, who are in exile, they read this. Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Now what have we done right the way through as we've seen the milestones of this is the account? We've had this idea going on that God has got his hand on this. That's what this is the account means. It means God has got his hand on it. He's working it out. He's, he's in control of it. He's creating a family line from there to there, and from there to there, and from there to there. And now we get to the point where he says, and now I'm just about to open up for you the next family line, and it seems like a crisis. Because the very next word says the family line can't carry on. Because Sarai is childless. Because it's not that she's young. There's a qualification. She's, she's not young and therefore hasn't had a baby yet. She's childless because she can't have a baby. 
Now, that is massive because it seems as though what God is saying as this story unfolds, and in fact that is precisely what Abraham experienced, is it seems as though God is saying certain things, but there is a huge impossible barrier in front of me. There's an impossible barrier. There's a future out there, but this is the reality at this point in time. It's always worked out that the child, that the lineage has been the key to the story. That's been the case for centuries going before Abraham. That's been the way the story has unfolded. We've seen the lineage open up and now we see it stopped. How is God going to work this out? That is the opening challenge of this story. How is God going to work this out? Now, for those of us who are in Babylon, who are reading this 1,400 years later, we know the outcome. And, you know, you can all go home and you can read it yourselves if you haven't read it before. Sarai has a child, so I'm not kind of, that's not a spoiler. <laughs> it's been there for centuries. So she has a child. God works it out. And those who are in a point of crisis, in exile, looking back, know that God worked it out. But for Abraham at this point in time, it seemed impossible. That is really important for you and me today. Because I think these chapters, this particular opening, sets, if you like, it sets a foundation for how you and I can think about this whole section. Have you ever reached a point in life as a believer in Jesus Christ? Or maybe you're reaching that point in life and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. But you know, you know that God is speaking to you. And you're being called to do something quite remarkable. A move may be like, not a literal move, but a shift in perspective, like moving out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Something so dramatic. Maybe there is an impossibility in front of you that you cannot see past. There is something in front of, your, in front of you in your experience with God in your experience with Jesus as your saviour, you say, I know that he's my saviour, I know that he's my lord, I know that he's my king. That's one perspective. Or alternatively, you might be looking on and saying, I don't know whether I can trust him. I don't know whether I can trust that God. Because when I look at that, I still have this issue right in front of me. This is the impossible. This is the thing that I cannot contend with. It's just too big. Whatever that might be. Something perhaps, maybe you're coming to this idea of faith and, and everything is telling you that it is true. But there is something that maybe intellectually you find just too big a stumbling block. That particular issue. I know that it's true. But that is just so big. And, you, and that is a, that's a big problem to you. 
and you know that you want to believe, you know that actually you do believe, but you can't put your faith in God because of that issue. You know that you believe in all of the rest of it, but that is too big. Or maybe you're reaching a point in your journey as a believer where you say, I know that I have this particular step that I know I need to take, or this seems impossible for me to get through. This is just too big. I know that I need to trust him, but I just don't know whether I can get through this. That is precisely, that is precisely where the readers of Genesis were. Because at that point in time, they are in captivity. They are in Babylon. The dream is dead. Now listen, folks. Where are we in this? I think our journey, our approach, and our attitude can be the same as those who were struggling at this point in time. What do they do? They say, let's remember what happened. And let's make note of what happened. Let's make note of the fact that when God moved in the life of Terah and Abraham, it seemed impossible. But let's remember the story, God turned over the impossible. Sarai was childless and barren because she was barren, at this point in time. But let's remember as we recount the story, as we look back there, let's remember God turned that over. I know we're in exile right at this point in time. I know that there's a crisis in our lives at this point in time. But God turned it over back there. That is really important as a principle for dealing with our challenges for today. God turned it over back there. We sit not where the compilers of Genesis sat. We sit 2,000 years beyond even more impossibilities in the story plan of God. We sit able to look back and say, as this story unfolded, there was a point for God's people where it seemed impossible because they were exiles. And then they looked back and they saw that God turned it over. And finally, they came out of exile and they returned. Where are we today? We can look back and we can say there was a point in time where it seemed impossible. There was silence. God hadn't spoken for hundreds of years. And then the story unfolds with a maiden virgin. Now that is impossible. That is just impossible that the story, the idea, could continue from that point in time. It's exactly the same idea, really, isn't it, as Sarai? It's exactly the same kind of idea. How can the story carry on when that is the impossible? And yet the God turns over the impossible because he continues his storyline through history. Because precisely at the point of impossibility, Jesus... Right at the point of impossibility, Jesus. Okay. We have 30 years of him growing up and then we have three years of ministry. How impossible do you want it to get? How about if the king dies? Now that's a point of impossibility, isn't it? It can't. Where do we go from a, a dead king? 
Where can we go when the Saviour is no longer there? We have the opportunity to look back. We're not like those who are experiencing it at that point in time with our chins on the floor. We have the opportunity to look back and say, God reversed the impossible. Because Jesus rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. That's the outcome. That is the purpose of God. The impossible is reversed. What are the impossibilities in your life and my life? We're going to drift a little bit into our last series because I know that the impossibility in my life is the defeat of my rebellion and my animosity and my sinfulness towards God. The fact that even though I am called to be a follower of Jesus Christ, I know that I continue to be rebellious. Now, I knew that I was rebellious even before I began to understand that I was a rebel who was loved. And now I am a rebel who is loved, and I continue to be rebellious. I know that little by little I can, I can see that he is working in me in a way which surprises me, which shocks me, which is challenging me and changing me little by little. But I know more of the worst bits and I know that many of you would be able to say, I know more of the worst bits than, than anybody else. And that's an impossibility. And yet God overturns it. He overturns that. Because this pattern that he has is not a simple historical lesson. It's not an interesting lineage of people from these various historical characters, which results in Abraham. It's about personal relationship with people who live and breathe and have a soul and have the potential of a relationship with him, which he breaks into by the power of his spirit. And he makes us realize that we are rebels and he reverses the impossible that the rebel can be a lover of God. He reverses the impossible that those who are animos who are who have animosity towards God, can become the children of God. That is the reversal that takes place. In a sense, we're living in a way in exile. What were these people doing as they gathered together this? They were saying, look back. Look how God worked it out. Therefore, can't we look forward knowing that God will work it out? If we see how he did it back there, can't we know that he'll do it out there? Can't I look forward and know, even though I'm stuck in slavery in Babylon, can't I know that he'll work it out because that's what he said he'll do? And when you are faith, when you get up tomorrow morning and the reality of your barrier seems bigger than ever. Look back. He reversed the impossible and therefore he promises that the future will be achieved. Your future? Well, yes, but only because it sits in with his future. It's not all about us, you see. It's all about him. 
It's about the fact that our future can wonderfully be caught up in the great drama of God's purpose and plan for this world. That out there in the future will happen because I can look back and know that it's happened back there. That's great news. That's great news. The opening ceremony was a bit of a wow, wasn't it? There's been a whole load of stuff that's emerged. What did happen through that ceremony was the idea of the hope of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the hymn was sung. I think it's... um, I've got got this love-hate relationship with that song, I'll be honest. It's the hope of Jerusalem, the idea of England's good and pleasant land. Thankfully not. Thankfully not. It was said, Danny Boyle said this afterwards. We hope that too, that through all the noise and excitement, you'll glimpse... A single golden thread of purpose. The idea of Jerusalem. Of the better world. The world of real freedom and true equality. A world that can be built through the prosperity of industry. Through the caring notion that built the welfare state. Through the joyous energy of popular culture. Through the dream of universal communication. A a belief that we can build Jerusalem and it will be forever. Do you know what? If that's as good as it gets, we are in trouble. (laughs) There is a much better Jerusalem. There is a Jerusalem that will thrive on equality. There is a Jerusalem that will thrive on a prosperity that is beyond our imagination. There is a Jerusalem that will prosper. Precisely because God is laying the stepping stones of the securing of that Jerusalem way out there, wherever that might be, when he returns. Because he is saying continuously, look back, I've done what I said I was going to do. Maybe we need to think about that new Jerusalem and understand where am I in my relationship with the hope of that? Where do I sit? Is that something that the best hope I've got is Danny Boyle's hope of a Jerusalem that's filled with our endeavours? Or is it a hope of a real Jerusalem that was filled with the endeavours of God? worked out in this world.